So welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is your host, Michael Delaware. And today I have a very special guest who's been researching Civil War history in Michigan for over eight years. And he's been doing a tremendous amount of research into the Michigan 1st Colored Regiment, which later became the 102nd USCT, that's the U.S. Colored Troops Regiment. Maurice Imhoff is a historian from Jackson, Michigan, and he's also working on a book on the subject. So it's a great pleasure to have him here on the show today. Welcome, Maurice. Thank you for taking the time for this interview today. Hello. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Great. Well, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became fascinated with researching Civil War history? Yeah, so I am 20 years old and I am an intern at the Michigan State Capitol building working on the Save the Flags project to preserve Michigan's battle flag collection. Um, and I got started in Civil War history in 2014 at the Jackson Civil War muster, um, an event I've enjoyed a lot visiting with my grandfather originally. Um, and then joined a group of African-American historians. And, you know, the first year was all about the battles and, you know, blowing things up. And then the mm-hmm. second, second, third year, I really caught a niche for the history that it held. Wow, that's great. So when did you first become interested in the Michigan 1st Colored Regiment? Yeah, in 2014, when I uh, visited the group, the Living okay. History group, and then started doing the history research itself, you know, probably you know, a year or two so- later. And they were in a reenactment group for the Colored Group Regiment? Is yes. that what they? Yeah, oh, so the building historians yep, who reenacted, and that group's been around uh, since 86. Okay. So the Civil War began in 1861. When did the unit come into existence, and what were some of the people that were behind its formation? Yeah, so the organ, the excuse me, the regiment came to an in existence um, in 1863 after Abraham Lincoln passed the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, so a man by the name of Henry Barnes in Detroit, Michigan, saw that the time for action. He was uh, a large abolitionist and um, was very interested in raising a colored regiment. He was also the editor for the Detroit Advertiser and Tribune, um, which was a Republican newspaper for um, Detroit. Uh, I, would, I don't know if I'd call it an abolitionist newspaper. It probably was. Um, but I haven't confirmed that to be true as I haven't looked too much in the paper itself as its history. Um, but Henry Barnes got into it and he also teamed up with governor, um, Blair at the time and sparked interest in raising this regiment. So he worked, um, and got the authorization through the war department and governor, uh, Blair to get the authorization for the regiment. Um, and they first started recruiting on August 12th, 1863. Wow. And so where did they... How did they go about recruitment? You mentioned in your, I, I saw you speaking in Eaton Rapids. You mentioned they went on a train right across Southern Michigan. Yeah. yeah so as I mentioned, it recruited started in August of 1863. Um, he had a really rough time getting the recruits because they didn't offer any bounties. Um, so units or African-American men could go join other African-American units in other states nearby and get paid <laughs> right off the start to do it. Wow. So he was having a rough time getting Michigan men to do it. Um, he was later able to secure the bounties, um, but another thing that helped was the Enrollment Act of 1863, which was basically the draft, um, and a white individual could pay an African-American to go in his place um, in many cases. And, but, and you mentioned the, the, uh, the Grand Southern Tour, as they called it during that time. Right. Um, so uh, Lieutenant, Lieutenant Colonel William Bennett and Henry Barge took the men on a Grand Southern Tour down southern Michigan 
um, via the Michigan Southern Railroad. Um, and they uh, made stops in, in Ypsilanti, Ann Arbor, Jackson, Marshall, Niles, Dilajet, uh, and Kasopolis. And any stop, the band would get off, play a big song, and, you know, crowds mm-hmm. would come pouring out. That's reported that, the, you know, they would bring food out, they'd bring gifts. And part of this was, was recruiting, but the other part of this was showing that these men could make good soldiers. Um, there was this big thing in the air on, you know, in the newspapers that African-Americans wouldn't make good soldiers, you know, that they would be lousy. They wouldn't be passionate about it. Um, so part of this is they wanted to show that these African-American soldiers here in Michigan, you know, were proud and did a good job. And they were all positive reports. Wow. So you, you kind of had that whole dynamic at the time, too, with the abolitionist back newspapers mm-hmm. and the, you know, the anti-colored um, right. troops. Exactly. Reporters played, going after each other. and Yep, which played a big role. So for, I mentioned, you know, the marching down streets. And we were talking about this, you know, primarily in Detroit um, with the free press. Um, the 100 or the first Michigan colored at the time um, could make a march down the street to show off, you know, the new uniforms that they may have gotten or just to go on a parade mm-hmm. drill. Um, and they would march down very handsomely, look good, look sharp, drums playing. And the Detroit Advertiser and Tribune would write about you know, how they marched down the street. They did a drill, you know, get um, uh, a missing the, the, where the statue was there. I'm trying, I can't think of the name of that location right now. Um, but in, in, in the town center. In town square, uh, yeah. Town square. Um, and we do a good drill, then march back. Um, and they would talk about that very positively. On the other hand, the free press would publish an article saying how terrible it was. They came down and were very disruptive. They needed to leave the city and go off to fight and get out of here. Um, and they didn't like it. You know, they even wow. went so far to publish an article titled Raid of the Ethiopians, um, you know, really trying to, you know, almost be really derogatory as as, as much as they could yeah, um, right. to kind of deter this unit. Wow. And where did they actually train? I mean, they trained in the Detroit yeah. area, didn't they? Or? They trained um, just outside of the city limits of Detroit, just barely outside. Um, if you know where Mount, uh, not where it has Jackson, um, I'm trying to think. Ralph Bunch Elementary um, is where the camp okay. sat on, and then there's a oh, very okay. po- there's a very historic cemetery right nearby that I'm blanking on. <laughs> okay. um, that is a very historic cemetery. That um, the Elmwood Cemetery, right outside okay. Elmwood Cemetery, uh, the men trained there, which is just outside. And they had a rough time that first winter because 1863 they mm-hmm. they were given kind of rough accommodations. Right. Yep. So the, the camp was kind of built to be a temporary camp, um, but it was really when they first pub- when they first published the article about this new camp, they bragged about how strong it is. Now it's a good camp, even though it was temporary. Um, but that was it was all good of a camp until the winter of 1863 came, um, which was one of the most brutal, uh, brutal winters during that time. Um, and it got so bad there that they sent the men to live in the city. They sent them home to find shelter in the city and kind of evicted them out of the camp because they had several men who were freezing to death. Um, there was no tar paper on the roof. The roofs were leaking. Uh, there was no flooring in some cases. Uh, there were cracks in the floor, in the, in the, in the sides of the wall. Right. Um, so they were sleeping snow yeah. drifts. You know, so you had snow actually blowing into <laughs> the buildings themselves. Oh, my God. Um, so, you know, in, in a sense, you know, it was just a, a big, you know, gappy barn, you know, kind of a style. And it, it wasn't mm-hmm. a shelter much of it at all. And they even didn't have enough blankets um, for the men. So it got really bad. And that wow. and that got fixed 
um, when they sent in a surgeon, a U.S. Army surgeon came in and intervened. Uh, he came in and basically ordered the repairs to be done to the camp um, after some time. Well, that's good. That's good. So after they got through training and they were they were eventually deployed, where did they first go when they were uh, um, of the United uh, States sent into to, action? Um, Annapolis, Maryland, to get federalized and become part of the federal government um, because that was technically, they weren't a state unit. Um, they were technically a federal unit um, because they were African-American unit. Um, so they got to the East Coast and um, had a real rough time. Um, when they first arrived, okay. it was raining really bad in Washington. This, there was lightning and it's, they could smell the dead bodies in the air returning from the South and uh, waiting to be buried. And one of the colonels had asked that the men use one of the empty barracks, empty barrack buildings nearby, uh, and his request was denied to use one of the empty barracks buildings. And the quote was that it was they were afraid it would arouse some of the white soldiers nearby, um, which is rough. So the these men of Michigan slept in the pouring thunderstorm um, for a night oh or two, man. Um, and it, it really devastating. Um, some of the conditions these guys had to go through. Um, and there's other units as well, you know, who had to go through things like this. It's not just them, uh, but primarily um, because they were an African-American regiment. You know, as I just mentioned, that was why they were request was ultimately denied. And you got to think this is a northern state, a northern unit, you know, and you're still having these issues. Um, right. But from there, they go and see engagements in South Carolina, Georgia and Florida. But by that time, they were the Michigan 102nd or the not Michigan, but the U.S. 102nd, they'd merged. Colored troops. Yep. So just before they leave Washington, um, they become federalized by the War Department and become a part of the U.S. Colored Troops, which is the United States okay. Colored Troops. Um, I mean, it's almost a separate branch of the Army in today's right. world um, that they created. Uh, they, you know, and the, that was segregated all the way up until World War II when Truman desegregated the, the United okay. States Armed Forces. Um, so they now become a part of the 102nd uh, or become the 102nd U.S. Colored Infantry, and they go down deeper into the South, and they do split into two wings. They have the left wing and the right okay. wing, um, and they divide up even more. And if you got to think of this, it's kind of like having your football team. Um, you have your football team that you practice with all the way up for the season. You can't wait to get your first right. game. And then they say, you go against this team, you go against that team, and you know <laughs> all your friends are gone. Oh, yeah, all, all <laughs> you your know? coordination and is that, thrown off too, I imagine. Yeah. Right. Right. And, and, and a big piece of that was because they're African-American unit. Um, a lot of the duties of these African-American units, um, not all of them, but the most of them were, was to do manual labor, mm -hmm. um, tearing up railroads, guarding places, building fortifications. So they didn't need to be this fighting force, you know, because they right. just kind of wanted them to do labor work. So it's kind of we need you here, need you there um, kind of a thing, which is what led them to be divided up. Uh, but their first engagement of this unit happened in Baldwin, Florida. The men are working on the railroads, and they start hearing this noise in the woods. That noise becomes louder and louder. Um, so the sergeant major orders them to fix bayonets and form into a line. They form up, and sure enough, just as soon as they're formed, the cavalry come pouring out of the wow. woods. Um, and they they lunge forward, bayonet, <laughs> believe it or not, bayonet the horses, you know, try to bring the guys mm -hmm. down, um, and then fire a volley, you know, as well into the into them. Um, and they have some hand-to-hand -hand combat there with that, um, which is very minimal for that time. Um, there was there were only two percent of casualties were from bayonets wow. during the wow. war. Um, but they have this hand-to-hand -hand combat, and they easily repel the cavalry, not without losing one man, um, which is increasingly impressive. And one big thing that why this is important is 
one of the talks or rumors across the entire country with these African-American soldiers is that they're not going to fight. You know, they're, they're, they'll talk all the talk, but they're not about, you know, the action. Right. So when as soon as those guns go off, they're running. Um, that, and that wasn't the case, you know, for almost all of the colored troops. And this unit proved that as well for that, the officers. You know, these officers have heard the rumors. They don't know whether or not these guys are going to stamp, you know, mm-hmm. that's true or not. Um, and this battle sure enough proved that, you know, these men will fight and they are there to do business. Yeah. And you got to imagine the motions going through them is probably a lot of rage and this is payback time and everything else. Like you saw in the movie Glory, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with that was a big hit film about the was it Massachusetts yeah. 54th, I think it was. Yeah. Yep. Massachusetts 54th. And the, this unit actually does have some uh, common interaction um, with that unit. They're, they're based in the same area wow. um, over okay. there. So they're working with the 54th and 55th over there um, in that area of St. Helena. St. Helena, I'm not, I'm not going to say okay. it right. Um, St. Helena Island, I believe, at South right, Carolina right. area, just north of uh, Georgia, South Savannah. Um, so they were commonly um, in and out through that area. So after that engagement, um, where what happened to them after that? Did they move on to a new location or? Yeah, so they, they, they saw other engagements, um, as I mentioned, in the South Carolina, Georgia area, in larger engagements is more picket firing. So that, and they see like nine to ten engagements of just, you know, picket battles. I mean, some are larger mm-hmm. than others, um, but nothing on the scale of Gettysburg and Tito, for example. So they're having uh, some really good engagements and fend for, fend for themselves very well. They only lose six men in combat during their entire time. Um, but the biggest time comes for them, the biggest challenge um, where it's quoted that the men covered themselves in glory um, was at the Battle of Honey Hill, South Carolina, wow. um, where the men are, are part of General Foster's um, division there. And the mm-hmm. Confederates had already captured the point and the Union ar- artillery, the battle's been going on and the Union artillery on the field had been decimated. Um, so they have these three guns that are on the field, um, these big cannon pieces, and they're just laying there or sitting there, excuse me. And the, the officers know that if they don't capture these guns, the guns will be turned on them and shot, you know, back into their lines. It will devastate the army and push them back even farther um, in an already losing engagement. So the uh, Michigan's Brave Colored Regiment, they go up and a company of these men uh, led by Captain uh, Arad Lindsay mm-hmm. uh, rushes forward to go get these guns. And as soon as the command is given to rush forward, uh, boom, Captain Arad Lindsay is killed instantly and uh, shot in the head. Um, the men proceed to move proceed to move forward. They're trying to get the guns, but are ultimately uh, forced back and retreat. Okay. Um, so this is a devastate, devastating piece, um, but you know, it doesn't stop them there. Um, Lieutenant Orson W. Bennett, who is brother of uh, Lieutenant Colonel Bennett, mm-hmm. um, he gathers 30 men, and then they go for a second attempt, rushing forward to get the guns. They rush forward and they bring these guns. Um, I mean, I, I believe it's 200 yards or over um, back to friendly lines. And you got to think you're wow. in the middle of a battle. Cannons are. Have you ever been to a, you know one of these reenactments and seen and heard yeah. the thunder of this stuff? You know the guns are roaring. There's you know these bullets flying by. Whizzing, and they talk about that whizzing sound that you can hear or the whistle that goes by. With right. the so you have that going on. Um, it's a dark day here, and these guys are going in and moving these guns um, in this in this hill formation. And it's it's terrible. Uh, but these these brave men, they do it. They take the guns back back to friendly lines, and mind you, they're getting hit with bullets. There's accounts of these guys getting wounded, getting shot, 
shot in the leg and still moving these guns, which weigh tons. I mean, they are heavy pieces. I moved them. Yeah, they, I mean, they're moved around by horses normally. Right. Yep. So they're heavy pieces. Wow, that's and uh, <laughs> I mean, and you're also putting your back towards the enemy as you're as well as you're moving these things. Yeah, so they're going to get bullets, and they're still you know pushing forward and doing it. Um, so there's all sorts of quotes from units nearby about these off these men. Um, they, they're watching these African-American men, you know, once again, you know, these white individuals who, you know, they, they, they might not have ever seen the African-American fight. They don't know what the, what's going on. And then they see the bravery right. behind these guys, you know, and it, I think that really, mm-hmm. you know, says a lot um, about this regiment. And for that action, um, Lieutenant Orson W. Bennett is later awarded um, the Medal of Honor. Wow. So that was, yeah, that was one of the biggest pieces that the um, 102nd had during their time. Quite amazing. And so when the men um, returned from the war, how were they received? I mean, I know you mentioned some of them received a parade when yeah. they got back and some of so them didn't. They, um, the war ended in April of 1865, um, but they um, were mustered out in September 30th of 1865, um, several months after that. And then they didn't return back home to Detroit until October of 1865. So they, they spent a bit of time. <laughs> Out, out there after the war had ended, but as you know, uh, or may know, that um, you know the war didn't just end in one day. You know there was a lot of right. um, piecing things back together all across the country that still had to be done. There's still people not, you know, willing to give up. <laughs> so you know, so there was right. still they still had to have the military in place for a little bit. Um, but they returned in October of 1865. So I mentioned early on that the unit divided into two wings: the left wing and the right wing. Um, one of the wings returned home. Um, via the train and made it back home uh, just fine. Um, the other one had took uh, the train back up to um, Ohio, Ohio or uh, yeah, Ohio, Ohio or New York, one of the two, mm-hmm. and then took a boat um, across um, to Detroit. Um, but they okay. they did not get a ceremony. They did not get a grand welcome back like the other unit did um, because the the depot. Um, where all of the ceremonies were held for returning units had burned down just the day before <laughs> the the uh, oh, they got wow. back. So that was not not quite an exciting moment for the other half. Um, but they were they were very well welcomed. The the African American soldiers in Michigan were very well perceived um, and welcomed back home during their time. Um, after the war, they participated um, in the Grand Army of the Republic, um, which is similar to the VFW of today. Um, actively talking about the, the different things that they can be involved in and advocating for veterans' rights, et cetera. Um, they participated in several parades across the state, um, these memorial mm-hmm. parades that were being held um, in remembrance parades. So they, they participated in those and were well perceived. <laughs> um, several became successful businessmen as well. Um, so uh, they, they were doing very, fairly fine um, after the war. I mean, but there are some cases, unfortunately, where, you know, some were not. Yeah, it's uh, always a, it was kind of a, that's partly how the GAR came into being too, was to help some of the returning soldiers. Right. And they, they helped lobby for a lot of the colored troops to get pensions mm-hmm. when they were being denied pensions right. and things like that. Uh, you mentioned um, at your talk that during the recruitment process that Sojourner Truth, who was based out of Battle Creek, did mm-hmm. a lot of the recruiting um, or helped with the uh, kind of spear the right. Can you tell me a little bit about yeah, that? Yeah, so as we know, um, Sojourner Truth was a strong uh, abolitionist. She was born in slavery in New York, um, met with Abraham Lincoln, actually, in the White House in 1864, um, but and then um, had some good ties here in Michigan. Um, she actually was part of the, uh, the National Freedmen's Relief Association. So she was, you know, a, a really strong piece of 
African-American history during that time, very similar to Harriet Tubman. Um, so she um, actively was recruiting for the unit, advocating, you know, now is your time. You know, now is our time to go back and fight, fight for the freedom of others, get involved, you know, take up arms um, and, and fight for the union. And she uh, visited actually the, the camp of the, the Colored Regiment in Detroit um, on November 23rd of 1863 and got involved and, um, you know, gave the men gifts for them, um, back participated in a, in a church service for them. Um, I think she visited twice um, and really wanted to show her support um, for Michigan's Colored Regiment because you're looking at a time, you know, as this is building up over the years, you know, for right. people who are still enslaved or people who were enslaved and then had were able to escape slavery come to the North. And then now you get this moment to put on the blue suit and go back and fight right. for the freedom of others. And it's not just about fighting for the other people of others. It's about that equality that that uniform holds because now you're wearing the same uniform that the white man's wearing. And that's one of the yeah, big things yeah. that the, uh, the this unit, Michigan's unit took, you know, as a part of on their flag was it was the painted the words, all men are born free and equal to realize which we fight. That was the model these men went by. Wow. They strongly believed, you know, we are born free and equal. And this is why we're fighting. Wow. And so that's part of the, some of the flags are still, some of them are a partial state mm -hmm. of decay, but they've been able to restore some of them and they're stored at the Capitol now. Yeah. So um, the flags were in the Capitol, but they were turned in in 1866, I believe, uh, at Campus Marxist. And that was the name I was starting to think of earlier um, in Detroit. They had a right. big okay. ceremony. Um, 75,000 people in the state of Michigan. I, I think to my knowledge, that was one third of the population of the time, I think that we know of, um, that basically yeah. came to the ceremony. Um, and most of the flags were turned in during that time. And th three of which were flags of the first Michigan 102nd United States Colored Infantry. Um, those flags were wow. in the Capitol building um, for quite some time. And then they were moved with the other flags over to the state archives um, now in a, um, a private, um, in a private room, but you can schedule tours, you know, to see them, um, but they're on archival paper. So three of those flags are there. Um, like you said, they're, they're in pretty rough condition. Um, you know, being over 150 years old and made of silk and hand painted, these flags are hand painted and some and embroidered some of them as well. Um, but there's three right. of which, of which in there and, and some of which, two of which have been conserved, undergone conservation. Well, that's good to know that some of that history is being preserved. So you're in the process of writing a book on the 102nd very, U.S. Yeah, Colored very, Troops. Yeah, process. As I'm gathering this information, um, most of which um, has not been talked about, you know, publicly. Um, you know, I'm trying right. to, you know, find those interesting facts, like the fact that, you know, this unit had been able to go into a fort, um, Fort Walker, um, on the East Coast. And, you know, why is that significant? Well, because they, they weren't even allowed to go to Fort Wayne in Detroit, you know, so... You know, key facts like that wow. um, are really important and that, you know, that we're digging up, including like the, the flag, the flag wording um, that wasn't, you know, published mm -hmm. anywhere. So, you know, trying to find these these significant things and make sure the public's aware of them. Well, that's good. Well, it's important to tell the story accurately, mm -hmm. as you know, as a historian. So take your time. But when you do have the book ready, uh, certainly let me know and we'll have you back oh, on. It'd be you. awesome. Yeah. I you would know. definitely keep you posted. Oh. Might, might take a little time, right. but as you know, um, you know the, re <laughs> the research well, you know, is I'll, important. That's great. Well, anything else you want to add before we close today? Uh, nope. Other, other than the fact that I guess, you know, that we have some great living historians around today that are helping to keep this, this unit stories alive. You know, so when you visit some Civil War um, events across the state, you know, you will see a group of African-American living historians 
um, you know, telling this story, which is really unique. We have we have two units, you know, one's from Detroit Company B, and then we have another one here from Jackson called Company C of the unit. Um, and Company C is comprised of mainly high school and college students. Um, so it's really neat to see that, wow. that, you know, that exposure. Where where can people go online to find out about those events if they want to come see yeah, them? Yeah, so um, All Michigan Civil War is a great site that talks about uh, Michigan and the Civil War. And then there is a, um, a location um, also in Jackson, an event, excuse me, the Jackson Civil War muster. And that would be my big emphasis for everyone to check out in August, the last weekend of August this year. Um, it'll be so they, they usually post a calendar on that site. Yeah, the dates and such. So, you know, right about there. Or you can Google, you know, okay. Michigan Civil War events. It's all very unique. Yeah, great. Well, that's super uh, good information to know. And I'll put some of the links to that in the podcast description. Well, thanks for joining me today, Maurice. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy day to do this interview. Thank you for having me. So that's going to conclude today's episode of Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. If you enjoyed the episode, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast and check out some of the links at the end of the description of this podcast episode. And once again, thanks for listening, and I'll be back next time with another great story into Michigan's past.